to the lesson. All right, let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, we are grateful today to to again be able to, to sit under your word taught in the Sunday school and then later preach to us in, in service. Um, pray that you would cause us to grow in our love and, and adoration of your, of your word. Help us see the, the big picture of, of the whole Bible and how everything connects to bring glory to you through your Son. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. So today we are concluding, finally completing our study in the Old Testament through the book Dominion and Dynasty. Um, I was trying to think of how long this study has been, but time has escaped. Does anyone know? Two months? Two months? A few months. We'll say a few months. A few months study, and it's been very beneficial to me, at least, if no one else, to just be able to spend time in the Old Testament and, and trace all of the, the themes and patterns that God has intended for us to see there. Um, but I do want to introduce the, the new book that we're going to go through starting next week. You know I don't do slides, so you're going to get the old school. Here's the book. It's called Knowing Sin by Mark Jones. Knowing Sin by Mark Jones, and it's going to be about a 10-week study through the doctrine of sin, which will be very beneficial, I think, for us. Um, so, you can order that book this week. We're going to start that one next week. Um, and it's Moody Publishers, if you are one of the people that like to just go straight to the publisher and not support Amazon. Okay, so the goal for today is to hopefully put some things together as we've gone through just a ton of Old Testament data and, and information over the course of the past few months. And hopefully we can put all of that info we've been gathering about, about the big story of the Old Testament into a more systematized categories, especially when read in light of the New Testament. And I think the best way to do that is to examine what Dempster calls um, in his book New Testament Reflections on the themes and patterns we've seen in the Old Testament. And this should bring clarity for us as we see what, what the New, New Testament authors highlight and what the New Testament authors emphasize in their writings. And I think this brings up just a very important principle about Christian hermeneutics or, or Christian interpretation of Scripture. And that is the best way we can interpret and therefore understand the Old Testament is by looking at how New Testament authors interpreted Old Testament texts. And this is really a point that, that Dempster's book does not address um, explicitly, but it, it, he kind of assumes this, which is good. It's not a knock on the book. It's just not the purpose of the book. Um, right to, to make these, these New Testament connections super explicit. Because Dempster's primarily concerned, as we've seen, with taking the, the Old Testament on its own terms and not necessarily concerned with putting the whole picture together of, of both the Old and New Testament. But 
Dempster does offer a, a few pages, three pages, Art? Maybe, maybe two pages on New Testament reflections. There's much more that could be said, so we are going to be um, utilizing some other sources from some other biblical theologians today. So Dempster begins the, this final chapter with a, a sort of overview of what the, the narrative of the Old Testament shows us. So he writes this, he says, From Adam to David, from, creation of the wor- from the creation of the world to the building of the temple, which will give new life to the world and from which the divine rule will extend to the ends of the earth, genealogy and geography, dynasty and dominion. In short, the Old Testament is about the, the reclamation of lost human dominion over the world through a Davidic dynasty. It is about the coming kingdom of God. It is about the coming kingdom of God, and that's his kind of one-sentence explanation of, of what the Old Testament consists of, the, the, the Old Testament narrative. And of course, Dempster has presented this, I think convincingly, that this is the story, or, or you could say this is the narrative framework of the Old Testament. And it's clear then that, that the Old Testament is, is one book, made up of a, of a collection of, of smaller texts from a diversity of literature, but with one overall narrative, one overall story that can be traced through the pages of the Old Testament. That's what we have been doing, hopefully, the past few months. And one massive structural feature of the biblical narrative that comes out of, of analyzing the text in this way as one narrative is something called typology, typology. And I'm going to be using um, uh, the definition and explanation of typology from a, a New Testament professor named Andy Nacelli. And I think he, he's written a helpful article on this topic in biblical theology. So typology, simply put, is the study of types and the historical and theological correspondences between those types, which leads to a definition of types. Types, a type then is a, a biblical event, person, or institution which serves as an example or pattern for other events, persons, or institutions in later history. So a type is a, a biblical event, person, or institution which serves as an example or pattern for other events, persons, or institutions in later history. So typology, then, is the study of these biblical events, persons, and institutions throughout the biblical text that have future correspondence and connection, or, or later correspondence and connection. So this same kind of abstract academic classroom, I'll be going through some examples of this, and I think it, it, it will click as we've gone through this study and hopefully become more concrete for us. But really the most important thing, or one of the most important things, should clarify, about understanding typology is that the basis for typology, or, or recognizing these patterns, the basis for that is God's activity in history, and specifically the history of, of his 
chosen people and his redemptive acts in history to save his people. So what that means is that typology is not something that we impose upon the text of Scripture as interpreters. Meaning we don't approach Scripture and say, hey, this looks like a really neat connection between these two texts and declare that as a type. It might be a type. I'm not saying it could be, but it's not a type because we said it's a type. Rather, these types and correspondences between the types are actually intended by God. They're intended by God in His revelation to humanity. So it is much more like something we discover than something we invent. That's just a really important principle to have in thinking about typology. And, and we'll explore that a little bit more in a minute. But, but Nacelli argues that there's, there's four main elements um, that make up typology, or, or typology includes these four elements. And so the first element of types is that types are analogous. Types are analogous. So a type and its antitype, and by antitype we just mean the, the fulfillment of the type, the, the, the fulfillment of the person, event, or institution, or, or what that type is pointing towards. So the, the type and the antitype correspond in an analogous way, meaning they compare to each other in a significant way. They, they have some resemblance to each other. Analogy, then, is, is the basic starting point for typology. So an Old Testament type such as Moses, or, or the, the Exodus event, or the, the sacrificial system, correspond in an analogous way to their antitype, or, or fulfillment, who is Christ, who is Jesus. So Jesus is the, the final Moses through which comes a new exodus from slavery of sin and fulfills or is the, the antitype of the sacrificial system through his once-for-all sacrifice on the cross. But notice how there, there's an analogy between the, the Old Testament person, event, or institution and the fulfillment of that thing or person. They relate to each other in, in some significant comparative way. So it's, just, it's very important to note that, that typology is always more than analogy. So it's more than just a mere comparison of similar things. But it's not less than an analogy. There, there must be some similarities between the two types or things being compared um, in typology. Now, the way typology is more than mere analogy is that the type and antitype actually occur in history. Right? The type and antitype actually occur in human history. And this is the, the second element of a biblical type. They occur in history. So, this is what scholars call historical correspondence. Historical correspondence between two things. So the person, event, or institution actually occur in history and aren't merely just symbolic. And, and we can come to know of these historical events or people in the text of special revelation, so in the, the scriptures. One example of this is, is Adam. Paul in Romans 5 
verses 12 through 21, argues that Adam is a, is a type of Christ and that Adam is the, the covenantal head, or you could say covenantal representative of the original creation of humanity. And Christ is the covenantal head of the, of the new creation, the new people of God. But this argument only works if Adam really existed as the first human being. This is why historically in the church, belief in a historical Adam is absolutely essential to any formulation of Christian doctrine. The danger here is to make typological connections that aren't grounded in history, or, or you could history that we see in God's special revelation, is that typology becomes a type of exercise that can be very subjective and just up to the interpretation of the reader, very postmodern, you could say, type of discipline. But these biblical types, that, that is the study of typology that we're interested in, are always intended by God in how he has ordered history. So, and, and how he's ordered history and revealed it to us through his word. The, the third characteristic of typology is that typology is foreshadowing. Typology is foreshadowing, and that God s sovereignly designed the type to, to foreshadow to the anti-type, to the fulfillment. So a principle we can have in interpretation and, and thinking about typology is that, uh, as Andy Nacelli says, he says, God ordered Old, Old Testament history to, to prefigure and anticipate his climactic redemptive acts. I'll say that again. God ordered Old Testament history to prefigure and anticipate his climactic redemptive acts. And the New Testament is the God-breathed record of those redemptive acts. The New Testament is the God-breathed record of those redemptive acts. So Old Testament types always are pointing towards and, and prefiguring God's redemptive acts in the New Testament, which are found right in the person and work of Christ and Jesus. And what is key here is to understand that the, the antitype, the thing, the type was always intended to point towards or, or be fulfilled in what, what the type is prefiguring is Jesus, who, who fulfills the Old Testament, the Old Testament prop promises and types. Every promise of the Old Testament finds their yes in Jesus, which leads to the, to the last aspect of, or the last element of typology, which is escalation. Escalation. The, the anti-type, the fulfillment of the type, escalates the type. Or you could say the, the anti-type, which is, remember, which is Christ, eclipses the type. Paul says in Colossians 2.17, these are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. The substance belongs to Christ, or, or the substance is Christ. You could translate it that way. So the Old Testament type finds its fulfillment, or, or its substance, what, what its true intention was always for, in the person and work of Christ. And in that way, the persons and events and institutions we've seen in, this, in the study of the Old Testament are like a, a shadow 
to, to the actual substance of the thing, the person, the event, or the promise, the institution. And what we see when, when we put these things together is really simple, is that the Bible is really just one big story about who? Jesus, yes. Jesus, the, the, the Messiah, fulfills the Old Testament. And, and the entire Old Testament, all of the types, point to him. So you could say that, that Jesus is the climax of every typological trajectory. That's the way some scholars will put it. He's the fulfillment of every typological or every trajectory of the type. And by following the themes and trajectories that we've seen in this study, by, by, by going through this book and, and knowing they're, they're, they're intended by God to escalate and to find fulfillment in Christ is really the key to interpreting all of the Old Testament, I would argue. And the cool thing is, this is actually how um, New Testament authors interpret the Old Testament. This is what they're doing. The book of Hebrews is a wonderful book, you should read it this week, of, to, to, to examine how the, the author interprets Old Testament events, people and institutions, finding their fulfillment in Christ as the substance or, or better fulfillment of that person or institution or event in the Old Testament. It's all over the place in Hebrews. And really, so, so typology, you might have heard all this, and it might sound technical and difficult, but really, at the most fundamental level, it's just the result of, of drawing out the meaning of Bible passages in light of the whole context of the, of the whole Bible, read in light of it being one story. It is one giant text, then. And so we should expect when we come to that one giant story, it's giant and that it's big and it's giant and that it's very important. Um, but we should expect to see thematic and theological connections um, when we approach it. And so I, identifying those threads of connection is greatly served, or actually I'd say necessary to have typology, that the study of these types in the biblical narrative. And one of the things that's, that's so helpful about Dempster's book is that it helped us see that, that these Old Testament types also develop in the Old Testament narrative before they find their fulfillment in Christ. So we can see in the narrative, if you remember the study, um, the movement from, from universal to particular and then back to universal. So you, Maybe I should have slides sometimes. <laughs> universal to particular and then back to universal um, in the narrative of the story. So Adam, God's first son, and humanity by extension, is called to image God to all of creation. So, so universal. Adam fails by falling into sin, is eventually um, um, replaced by Israel, who, who's also regarded as God's son. And a tribe, Judah, is singled out from within Israel. And a family within that tribe is singled out. And then an individual from that family is singled out. His name is David. David, yes. David, so you see universal to very particular, one individual. And then the focus shifts to David primarily in the narrative. 
And yet David and his seed failures, they, they point forward through the prophetic literature we see to a just Davidic king who will bring the benefits of godly rule not only to Israel, but to all of humanity. So we're back to universal. Universal particular and then an expansion in the prophetic literature to universal blessing. We see a similar pattern here with dominion. That Adam is to rule over all of creation. And then we see a particular focus on the land of Canaan. right? A particular place, piece of real estate, becomes the, the, the main focus of the narrative. And then even more magnified in, we see the city of Jerusalem within Israel. And then very particularly, the temple becomes the main focus of the narrative. And from this particular place, the rule of God extends outwards to, to Israel, but then beyond Israel to all the nations. Remember some of those um, great visions we saw in Ezekiel, at the latter half of Ezekiel, from the temple become blessing to all of the nations. So we see as the story develops, universal rule of creation to a particular place, the temple, which will then come universal rule again one day over all of creation. So we see this pattern in the Old Testament of, of movement from universal dominion and blessing to a particular people group and particular individual and particular place, the temple. And then from the, that individual, David, and from the temple, from that particular place, will come universal blessings, universal promises to all of creation, to all people. And so Dempster's helped us see that's pretty much the general pattern of the Old Testament, specifically with the themes of dominion and dynasty. And I think we can make some pretty significant conclusions about the meaning of the Old Testament, and really the Bible at large, as we reflect on the New Testament fulfillment of a couple of these prominent themes that we've been tracing. Um, and so that's what we're going to do with the rest of our time. And those two themes I want to explore are the promise of the people of God, promise of the people of God, specifically the, the new covenant people of God, and the promise of land, the promise of land. But I'll pause here for any comments, questions, water break, coffee break. Yes? Yeah, well, I think it, it ultimately it helps us with interpretation and then understanding meaning of texts of the Old Testament if we follow the types and the patterns is, I would argue, the only way we could fully understand the, the meaning of those texts. Yeah, well, yeah, just yeah. Yes, to help us have greater understanding of, yes, of the anti-type when it comes. I think that's right. Aletha, do you have your hand? Yeah, all the time. You, Aletha, you got to get in before Dennis because he, he knows all the answers. He just, he's slow to get there sometimes. <laughs> I think that's right. And you, that's basically the second half of the lesson. So you did it. You, got, you, you passed the test. <laughs> that's good. No, that's exactly how you, I think you should be interpreting it. Um, and seeing those tensions in the New Testament of these promises seem to be partially fulfilled 
and the first coming, especially when we talk about the land promise. Um, but we're going to get to that. So if I don't answer it, we can talk about it. Yeah, no, that was great. Okay, so let's think about the people of God. The people of God in the Bible. And I'm, I'm depending, depending heavily here on an article written by an Old Testament professor, Jason Derushi. Um, very helpful article. But what we see when, when analyzing the big story of the Bible is that the people of God are, are humans, obviously, who are related to the Lord through, through covenant, who, who identify Him as King, and whom God uniquely grants them the, the opportunity to display His greatness, His glory, by embracing His claim on their lives. That's a really long definition for a, a person. But at the, at the very beginning, we see the first couple, Adam and Eve, are, are the prototypical people whom God called to, to represent and reflect uh, their creator to the world, to reflect God to the world, to image him to the ends of the earth. And that way we saw them called as sons of God, charged to, to have rule and dominion over the creation. And remember, we, we also notice how Adam served a, a priestly role as he, he guarded the garden in the same way the, the priests were to work and, and guard the temple in the, in the tabernacle and temple periods of Israel's history. But we know instead of fulfilling these obligations, Adam sinned and Adam and Eve were, were exiled from the garden. And from there, God raises up Abraham, who God promises to, to give offspring as, as numerous as the stars. And on one level, his offspring would be a nation that, that would inhabit the, the promised land the, the Lord would give them. But we also saw initial promises of a, of a single representative from this line who is, is perfectly obedient, who is a, a warrior king, who would rule, have universal rule over everything, and he would rise from the tribe of Judah. We saw this in Genesis 49. And only in the day of this servant king would Abraham or, or, and the patriarchs um, move from being the father of one nation, Israel, to the father of many nations, which he's promised in Genesis 22. So then we, we see in the storyline that the, the promise given to Abraham of seed, land, and, and blessing were passed down to his son Isaac and then passed down to his grandson Jacob, whose own sons became the, the 12 tribes of Israel. And then Israel would become the, the focal point of the story and the first group of people that God designated in his word as my people. All right, God called Israel his people. Israel is also import, importantly called Yahweh's son, the Lord's son, in places like Exodus 4.22 and, and Deuteronomy chapters 8, chapters 14. There's a number of places where God refers to Israel as his son. And we see that when when Israel arrives at, at Mount Sinai, at the Exodus 19, they, they go into a, a formal covenant with God, with Yahweh, and they would serve as a kingdom of priests and a holy nation as they submit to God, as they submit to God's ways and the law that He gave them 
as the, the covenantal stipulations. Of course, we know that the people of Israel did sin. They, they transgressed against God's holy law. And it was a dark period for quite a long time in Israel's history where every man did what was right in his own sight um, and, and wickedness was rampant. But then came David, a righteous king. Uh, he's characterized as a, a man after God's own heart whom God promised from his line would come one with, with an everlasting kingdom and an and a everlasting dynasty who would bless all nations, bless the world. And if we continue to follow this theme of the people of God and the prophets, we see in Isaiah, primarily, the, the universal nature of this people. So not just specifically Israel, but lots of promises of the universal nature of God's people. Not in that all people will one day be a part of God's people, but universal in the sense that, that people from every tribe, tongue, and nation will be a part of God's people at some day in the future. And we saw from Isaiah 53 and, and other chapters that God was raising up a, a servant king from the line of David that would suffer and, and even die to bring salvation to all peoples of the world. And importantly, for, for our view of the people of God, we see in Isaiah that this same royal servant person from the line of David would actually bear the name Israel. He will be named Israel. Isaiah 49.3 explicitly says this. And, and this new Israel, this new Israel's mission would be to include not only reconciling to God some from the people of the nation of Israel, but also saving from all the nations of the earth. Isaiah 49.6 says, I will make you a light for the nations so that my salvation will reach the ends of the earth. It will be universal. So this is no doubt referring to Jesus. And if Jesus then is the new Israel, or you could say the, the fulfillment of the nation of Israel... What, what the nation was pointing towards, then a promise like Isaiah 45, 25 becomes very important. We read there, in the Lord, all the offspring of Israel, remember, I'm thinking that, that is Jesus, the, the true Israel, all the offspring of the true Israel, Jesus, shall be justified and shall glory, shall have glory. So that... This servant king, the new and true Israel, would have offspring is very significant if we think about the larger story. Why? Because we know Jesus never married. Jesus never had physical descendants, so we know his offspring must be spiritual in nature. The true Israel, you could say, like some that would need to be born again. <laughs> A spiritual rebirth would need to happen. Now, as we, as we fast forward, and really I'm skipping a ton of information, but this is the key stuff we, we, we need to know. Um, but as we fast forward, we, we enter into the New Testament. What do we find? Well, to make a long story short, what we find is that Jesus is this long hoped for Davidic ruler through whom God would reconcile the elect of all nations to himself. 
And those who identify with this divine son by, by trusting and submitting to his lordship are the new covenant people of God. So I just gave you one sentence of the whole New Testament teaching on the people of God. But it's true. Those who trust by Jesus, the divine son, by faith are now the new covenant people of God. And Darushi in this article, he chronicles a ton of New Testament data that, that unfortunately we don't have time to go through. I would love to send you that article if you're interested. Um, but what he chronicles is that this new family, this new people of the new covenant, would be characterized by following Jesus, doing his will, and, and heeding his teaching, among numerous other things. And Jesus fulfills the Old Testament predictions and promises that, we, that we've just been seeing that, that God's new covenant people or God's covenant people would be from all nations, would be universal in that sense, not just Israel. John 10, 16 says, I have other sheep, this is Jesus speaking, that I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them in also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. There is, you see, there's, there's one new covenant people of God. There's one people of God, and it is multinational. You could say it's, it's multi-ethnic. It's, it's universal in nature. Jesus called this new covenant community of believers the church, his church. So Matthew 16, 18, and, and Matthew 18, 17, this is what um, he, he proclaims about this new covenant people of God. They are his church, and he promised to build, and he promised to protect his church, and he commissioned his church to go into every nation and to make disciples under his authority and with his presence. And so at the most fundamental level, we see that the church refers to those in Christ those that belong to Christ by faith. Now this is where a ton of debate comes in on what happens then to Israel, the, the nation of Israel, the old covenant people of God. Are the promises to Israel, to the nation of Israel, are they for the new covenant people of God? Are they for the church? That, that, that is the big driving question in this debate. And this is where I think the study of typology is so important, or what we're doing in this whole study of biblical theology. Because we saw that the Old Testament, specifically Isaiah, identified Jesus, the suffering servant king, as the true Israel. In that way, we could say that, that the fulfillment of Israel, the nation, the people, is Jesus Christ. And today, on this side of the cross, and in this era of salvation history... The only people of God are those in Christ, period. That could be the end of the debate for me. And, and because Jesus represented Israel and even bears the name Israel, we can say that the church is now the, the Israel of God. That this is what Paul, I think, refers to in Galatians 6.16. And the argument, that Darushi argues this, and many other biblical theologians in this tradition that the church does not replace Israel, but actually becomes the true Israel through identifying with the ultimate Israelite, with the true Israel, Jesus. 
I think Paul makes very clear in Galatians 3 that every member of the church, whether Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or, or female, now enjoys oneness in Christ and the full inheritance of all God promised to Abraham and Abraham's seed. Darushi writes well here, putting everything together for us. He says, The makeup of God's people moved from Adam as God's son and head of all humanity to Israel as God's corporate son to, to Jesus as God's Son, who stands as the ultimate human and represents Israel, and in whom all identified by faith become God's people. I think that's exactly right. The, 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 the trajectory, trajectory we see of the people of God and the whole context of the Bible. And this is why we see in the New Testament that Christ is, is called the head of the church, and the church is his body. He's the, the, the bridegroom, and the, the, the people of God, the church, is the bride. God's people now are members of his household. Because through our relationship by faith with Christ the Son, Yahweh becomes our father. This Yahweh that we've been looking through, the, the whole Old Testament, he becomes our, our, our father by our faith in his Son. This is really glorious stuff. Um, and, and we didn't get to go into every detail. We're going to move on to the, the promised land, um, which actually is pretty related to this. But I hope you see the importance here. You just get a little taste of biblical theology. And the importance it has in our understanding of who the people of God are today in the New Covenant era, who the people of God are and therefore, who the church is, which is massively important for our Christian walk, as we are to be members of churches. Any questions or comments about the people of God? No comment. <laughs> maybe this, this next section might deter that, maybe, I don't know. So the, the last topic, sorry, I forgot my water. Last topic I want to discuss um, is the promise of land. The promise of land. We saw a ton of texts about dominion, right? And obviously the, the first title, or the first half of his title is Dominion and Dynasty. Dominion's primarily dealing with land. Um, so if you've been tracking, you know there's been a ton of mention of land and promises of a new land for the people of God. And so how does this all play out in the New Testament? Again, I would say a proper biblical theology will help us from error on this topic as we think about the land promises. Again, I'm going to be depending heavily on another article, actually a book this time by... Um, Oren Martin, he wrote a book in the same series as Dominion and Dynasty. So that Grace, I didn't bring my book. Art, Art has it somewhere. But the, the gray book in that same series, Oren Martin has a book called Bound for the Promised Land, a biblical theology of the land promise. Extremely helpful book, pretty academic. I'm going to synthesize it in like five minutes. But that's where most of this information is coming from. It's very good. Um, so the land God promised 
to, to Abraham in Genesis 12 begins the, the process of humanity recapturing what they, what they lost in the fall in Eden, what they lost in Genesis 3. So true dominion of God's creation in paradise. That's what they lost. And the, the promise given to Abraham in Genesis 12 is the, begins the process in history of humanity recapturing what they lost. So in the, in, in the holy land of God. And what we don't see, the, the full ending of this process of God's people coming into the fulfilled land until a, a new and better Eden is regained. So a new and better paradise is regained. We don't see that full ending of this process that God started in Genesis 12 until a new and better Eden is regained. And so when we view the land and the promise of land in the Old Testament, one hermeneutical lens, one interpretive lens we must read these texts through is that at every point in the Old Testament, the, the physical promised land anticipates an even greater land to come. And I think the narrative bears this out because as we saw, the physical land promise in the Old Testament did not transform the people or, or give them true, true rest. And in that way, it wasn't paradise. It wasn't like it was in the garden where they experienced true fellowship with the Lord. Now, what is confusing about this, or at least what has caused a great deal of debate about the land promises, is that the promise is initially related to the nation of Israel and the conquest and settlement of land in, in Canaan. But we know, especially from, from the prophetic commentary, that the divine design of, of the physical promised land, the, that, that piece of real estate, is that it was always pointing towards something more expansive, which we finally see revealed in the New Testament. So in that way, the land and the, the land promises are a mystery in the Old Testament. Mystery in, in, in a, the theological sense of the word meaning the true meaning of it is, is not revealed until the coming of Jesus and his death and resurrection. It's not fully revealed until the coming of Jesus. So what do we see in the Old Testament? Let's just recap really quickly. God promised land, offspring and blessing to Abraham in Genesis. And this land is centered on the land of Canaan. But it's important to note that even in the immediate context... Um, of Genesis 22 and Genesis 26. It tells us that, that the Abrahamic covenant and the promise of land points to universal expansion of the land promise, of the, of the promise of universal blessing. In other words, the, the propagation of Abraham's offspring would result in inheriting the entire world. So not just one piece of land. That was never the original intent, you could say, of the promise. Paul says in Romans 4.13, for, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world, it did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. The heir of the world. That's a very important phrase um, if we're thinking about land and dominion. So in the promise to Abraham of land and to bless all the nations through his offspring, we see a type or pattern here that is pointing back towards the, the paradise in Eden, and points forward to the ultimate fulfillment of the promise that would eventually encompass the entire creation, the entire world. So we can see that both, both 
even in, in the promises given to Abraham, we see both national promises or promises to the, the future nation of Israel and international components of all nation and God's covenant with Abraham. So the ultimate inheritors of the promise to the patriarchs is not restricted to a national entity. That's massively important to, to, to grasp. The ultimate inheritors of the promises to the patriarchs not restricted to the, um, a national entity. I'm talking specifically here about Israel. Um, but it extends to an international community, the new covenant people of God that we talked about just a moment ago. Orrin Martin writes well here. He says, God's programmatic agenda for humanity after Eden begins with the formation of a nation through Abraham and points forward to an international people, which is picked up later in the prophets. So, so no physical, the way you can think about this, it's helpful for me at, at least, no physical land borders like, like the nation of Israel or, or any other nation for that matter could exhaust the, the territorial land promises that we see given to Abraham and his seed in, in the promises of Genesis and then later clarified and explained to us in the prophets. No nation would be able to fulfill that. And that again, it's an extremely important concept as we're putting our Bibles together. But we do see what I think we could call partial fulfillment of the land promises of God, giving the promised land to Abraham's descendants, giving the, the, the physical piece of land that we saw in the Old Testament, Canaan. So we see much development in the narrative here in the Old, Old Testament is surrounding this piece of land. Um, under leaders like Moses, Joshua, David, and Solomon, God gives his old covenant people the land, and because of their sin, right, we see they're eventually expelled from the land through exile. And in the prophets, we see a, an important focus shift back to the Abrahamic promises and the advancement of that, that pattern, that type of universal land. Of, of worldwide dominion that will be fulfilled in, in various ways and, and stages, both, both physically and spiritually. And so Oren Martin points out one example of this. There's a, he actually points out a ton. I'm just going to highlight one from Isaiah. So I, Isaiah, if we're looking at the book as a whole, I, Isaiah described Israel's return from the exile in both imminent and distant ways. So both near future and far future ways. There is a physical release from the exile and return to the land that, that Cyrus will accomplish. Right? We, we looked about at that um, last week with the book of Chronicles and, and Ezra and Nehemiah. But this return is... is another fulfillment of God's promised restoration of his people, it doesn't actually compare to the prophet's final vision in the book of apparent true restoration and transformation. So the, this partial fulfillment, we, we still see God's people, after this partial fulfillment of returning back to the land of promise, we still see the people of God in spiritual exile because of their sin, because of their idolatrous hearts. And we see that God, servant king, the one we talked about earlier from Isaiah, the suffering servant king, 
will accomplish true restoration that God's salvation may reach the nations. And there's so many amazing promises really in the book of Isaiah. We talked about a lot of them when we studied the book of this coming suffering servant that that will initiate a new covenant that is universal in scope with international dominion. And such international redemption and dominion has been God's plan since the beginning and specifically in the narrative when Abraham received the promise. When Abraham received the promise in Genesis 12. And at the end of Isaiah, in Isaiah 65 verse 17 through through 66, verse 24, we see an an elaboration of the hope of restoration to the city of Jerusalem. And and the land is described in otherworldly language that describes remarkable realities of a new heavens and a new earth, a, a new Jerusalem. So by the end of Isaiah, this new Jerusalem, which is, I think synonymous with the new heavens and and the new earth is God's kingdom coming to and filling the entire world. That's how it's described. It's filling the entire earth. And the argument I'm making is the the land promise will ultimately be fulfilled in that day. And that day when their new heavens and new earth are consummated. And there there really are more important developments we find regarding the, the land and, and promises of the land and the other prophetic works, especially Ezekiel, very important. But I think we can see, safe to say, I think, we can see pretty clearly in Isaiah that God's plan from the beginning was to have a people from all the nations to one day inherit and have dominion over the world. What was lost at Eden? Which is what the promised land in the Old Covenant is always pointing towards. It's what the land promises. That is what the the conquest, the the God delivering the land to the old covenant people is always pointing towards this future day of universal dominion over all of creation. Now, as we've as we've seen that the New Testament reveals that what was promised in the Old Testament is fulfilled through the person and work of of Christ, who is the true Israel. And Jesus inaugurates the kingdom of God through his death and resurrection and his ascension and finally delivers his people from the exile of sin. And we see by by looking at the New Testament data that, that through Christ's work on the cross, he makes a new covenant people who belong to the new creation, described as as temples of the living God. Christians are now where you could say God's presence dwells as we're united to him through Jesus by faith, who is the the true temple, how Jesus would describe himself. Think of John 2, um, verses 19 through 22. Christ proclaims he's the true temple that will be risen up after three days. So this new people, which this is what we talked about in the last section, this new covenant people of God is called the church. It's a multi-ethnic body, just meaning it's not only Jewish. It's Jew and Gentile. And we're presently awaiting our final home. So I'd say the, the, the promise of that new heavens and new earth kingdom. 
We're described as being sojourners and exiles here as we wait. And what we know about our future home from places like Revelation 21 through 22 is that it echoes what we see in the prophetic literature. This new heaven and new earth is cast in terms of a paradise-like garden city. A restoration of the paradise. In other words, the, the realities of the Old Testament land promises, the expansive city, uh, the, the better temple, the land, they reach their fulfillment, their, their telos, their end, in the new creation that Christ wins. So those with faith in Christ, the true Israel, the true people of God, will inherit the whole earth in fulfillment of God's irrevocable promises. All of those promises we saw in the prophets, all of those promises we saw in the Old Testament, right? they're fulfilled in Christ and therefore are ours by faith in Jesus. So Jews and Gentiles who put their faith in Christ will together enjoy the land inheritance of the new earth, the consummated kingdom of God. Now that brings up questions about what about our time until then? What do we do as we wait for this coming kingdom? And I find it very helpful to think of then, as the, and this is how I think that the New Testament articulates this, is that the church is now like an inbreaking of the kingdom of God on earth, of that future heavenly kingdom, the church of Jesus Christ, those that are believers and spiritually reborn, are like an inbreaking of that kingdom into the world. The church, the community of visible saints who are regenerated, who have faith in Christ, are like an outpost of God's kingdom, is the way you could think of it. And this side of heaven, we don't actually have any physical kingdom. We have no land to speak of. Well, we have this little building, which is very nice, but we have the church universal has no land. We have no nation to speak of. And I would argue we have no promise or guarantee of land or earthly kingdom this side of Christ's return because those promises are fulfilled at the consummation of the kingdom. And this is controversial in some circles, but I'd also say there's no such promise to the nation of Israel because the true Israel is Christ and those who identify with him in faith, the church. So the kingdom of God is, is a spiritual kingdom as Jesus proclaimed, his kingdom is not of this world, which I'm taking, it means it's not physical, it's not tangible in, in that sense. And I think this is really important because it informs the mission of the church. It informs the mission, our mission, as Jesus' people. The church's mission then is not to, to rule the world and usher in the kingdom of God through physical means to a attain a physical kingdom, physical land, I think the church has er, er, committed errors, what's the word, erred, committed errors in this way a ton in the past, but the church's mission is primarily spiritual. As we await the coming kingdom and the, the new heavens and the new earth to be fully realized when the end comes, and we're to be faithful to the, man, the command of Christ in the Great Commission until that time comes, to go into all nations, 
and to make disciples of every tribe, tongue, and nation, baptizing them and teaching them in all the what Jesus has commanded us. That is our marching orders. That is our mission of the church. And so I hope you can see, just by examining these two themes, and there's much more, though the Word of God is so deep, is so rich, there's much more that could be explored, and I hope you do in your personal devotion times, but I hope you can see just by tracing these two themes, the, the people of God and, and land promises, the massive importance of biblical theology. It's very practical for what we do every day as the church, and therefore as Christians, as the church. And so this study of the Old Testament using biblical theology really is the foundation of our belief and our practice as the church. And that's why it's so important to read Scripture as one unified whole with one message so that we can come to, to right understanding and right conclusions of what God commands of our life as his followers. So that is the end of our study in biblical theology. Thank you so much for listening. Next week we'll start uh, the book and study on the doctrine of sin. So thank you all so much for participating. And Mike, you were pretty close, right? <laughs> all right, you guys are dismissed.